Greetings. This week we're going to look at the doctrine of assurance, and we're doing so because it's a vital Christian doctrine. It was certainly central to the Calvinistic um, Methodists of the 18th century, and I really want to emphasize this. And this could be one of these messages that actually is perhaps maybe the most vital message I could ever create or be some help in. Um, I'm going to try to do it as few as, uh, words as possible, and, and hopefully the flow is good. Um, because we live in shaky times. Anxiety among young people are, is incredibly high. There's a, an immense amount of fear. You, you can see that we live in a time where things are unraveling. Um, we are, we are uh, sometimes very disagreeable people behaving very badly. And uh, what to do about all of it? What are we, what, oh my goodness, there's just so much that is going on. And, and again, especially fear. And I understand it. You know, it's easy for me at the age of 59, but I remember as a young man just trying to get comfortable in my own skin and how easy it is to be fearful, fearful of men, fearful of job loss, of the economy, um, just what's happening uh, in our nation, here in America, as well as throughout the world. There is much to be concerned about. And so how to take these concerns and turn them into some positive action to be of some help as best as we can. Uh, it, it can be very tricky, very confusing times. So this doctrine of assurance I'm not is not theoretical. This is not like an, an academic exercise. No, it's very personal. We need this as Christians. We need the assurance that only God himself can give. Now, I want to give you an example of how important this was to the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists. Hal Harris so certainly wanted to become an Anglican minister. And I know that because he uh, applied, I thought it was three, but it was actually four times for ordination within the Anglican church. Now, of course, they were upset with him because he kept traveling around, preaching the gospel, and he, and uh, uh, though, uh, though he was um, many times invited by the by the by the parish priest, but regardless, they were upset with this young man. And Hal Harris told him straightforwardly, and it might have been in the fourth time, he said, listen, I must go about preaching the gospel to poor sinners and set up these societies, or what we might call uh, community groups, where people who are new in their faith can come together to study the Bible and to pray and to help one another go in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ but also achieve full assurance of their salvation. That is how important it was to these Welsh Calvinistic Methodists. And likewise, I'm suggesting that it should be important to us. And the reason we are shaky people is because we, we lack this assurance, this divine assurance that comes from God. Um, and, and, and the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists um, had such a great emphasis on this, on the gospel message. And so I want to read to you, this is a, a wonderful poem from a, a Vicar Pritchard, as he was uh, 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 commonly referred to uh, with great affection. And, and he wrote the following regarding the importance of this gospel message. Sell your lands and sell your chattel, which I believe is personal property. Sell your shirt and sell your cattle. Sell, if need be, all your treasure 
to possess the whole of Scripture. Better have no drink, no eating, house, nor fire, bed, nor clothing, light of day, nor sun's warming shining, than to have no gospel teaching. And I think that poem really captures the heart of a William Williams, a Panta Kelly, and a Hal Harris, and a Daniel Rowland, and certainly Griffin Jones's bright morning star. This was what was in their heart, because as I say uh, frequently, the, the the country of Wells was uh, was just an utter darkness. It was it was um, the darkest hour, as William Williams would put it. So there was much confusion, and so, and I say that because perhaps. That could give us some hope that God moved in a mighty way um, within these people amongst great sin and darkness and seemed a hopeless situation. Likewise, may, may in God's providence um, that we would desire God to rend the heavens and come down and do it in our day as well. But that's how important this gospel message was to them. Give up everything for it. Give up everything for it. And so they put their time and their treasures to advance God's kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. And William Williams, to to, uh, refer back to our last message, on the need of being born again. So there's two doctrines I want to emphasize. The one to be born again, born from above, a miracle by God. And and this is what William Williams said about it. He said, "'Tis not to hear of doctrine, though splendid to the mind." Tis heaven's power only, no less that I must find. Base error and true teaching, to me are both the same, while I beneath sin's burden still grovel in my shame. How much I need God's power, for this is a world I'd for this a world I'd give. For Satan's full of knowledge, this only makes none live. Without the word that quickens, and it and its heaven's power. All pine away and perish, though kneeling by the hour. But oh, it profits nothing to know the truth in the head. Mere knowing might may not influence, the heart is still not fed. To prove it all is different, a taste of pardoning grace. Would make my life most blessed, my home the happiest place. See, William Williams under the preaching of Hal Harris would get wonderfully saved. It was unexpected. There was no preparation. It just happened. It happened quietly. And Williams, the Lord moved in such a way and and showed him that it wasn't knowledge that saved him. It was the power of God. That God was gave him a new heart, a new set of affections. That he needed to be born from above. And Harris makes the most, or I'm sorry, William Williams makes the most remarkable comment when he says, you know, that, you know, tis not to hear of doctrine. And so as, as wonderful as this truth, the gospel message as an example might be to the mind, but if there's no power, it's useless. You know, he says, baser, base error, in other words, false doctrine and true teaching to him is exactly the same. Why? Because if there's no power, it leads to the same result. Eternal damnation and separation from God. Because you're still dead in your sins. So it is from power above and power only 
this great need to be born again. But once we are born again, we need um, to come to full assurance in Jesus Christ. And this also is a gift from God. Now, let me give you an example, the best way that I can explain assurance of salvation. There's a phrase that I want to give you, and the phrase is, you must not stop at that. Now, I don't want you to think that this has something to do with marriage's works, all right? But it is something you are to, are, are to pursue. And achieving full assurance of salvation has many uh, ramifications to it. Um, but let me begin. The first thing I want to point out to you is you look at Acts chapter 2, and Apostle Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let me just stop here. How is Peter able to do this? How is he able to preach so boldly to people who just, you know, a short time period beforehand had crucified his Lord? And now here he is, brave, courageous, without fear, speaking plainly. The same man who uh, denied the Lord three times, who was frightened of a young lady, a young girl, denying Christ, full of fear, trembling, anxiety. And now he's able to stand here in front of these people who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, how is he able to do that? And when I was younger, I was told, it's because Peter and the other apostles saw the resurrected Lord and that gave him confidence. And certainly the resurrection of Christ um, certainly had a significant impact, but that misses the point. You must not stop at that. The reason he was able to do it is because he was caught up in the Spirit. Jesus had already told them, I want you boys to wait. Wait until the Spirit comes upon you. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit or caught up in the Holy Spirit, the best example that I can give you comes from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones where you're caught up in the Spirit in the sense that you forget everything else. In other words, God becomes the most important thing to you. You're caught up. You're filled. So, for example, um, I, I have two sons. And when my sons fell in love, um, they're caught up by these young ladies. They think about the young ladies all the time, what they need, what they want, what they desire. Okay? They're caught up. Um Lloyd-Jones uses this as an example of what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you no longer have a regard for yourself. You're just thinking about someone else. In this case, Apostle Peter is caught up in the Spirit, thinking only about God and Jesus Christ and his gospel. So there's, remember, in the last message with uh, William Williams of Pantakelly, 
um, there is um, um, there's a, 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 um, a, a task, right? There's a task and a talent, a talent and a task that has been fused together. So when you look at these men at Wells about how, how is it that they could do what they do and they withstand what they in the persecution and the criticism and all the rest of it, how is it that they were able to do it? It's because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we say filled, we must not think that God is somehow like a, a fluid because he's not, he's a person. And so instead of when we think about like, um, you know, I don't ever want to be hard on analogies because I use them and analogies always fall short, but you say, okay, well, I'm going to empty myself and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, I could empty myself of worldliness and things. I, I, I get that. I f see that. But really, when we talk about being filled, it's about intimacy. It's about a closeness. All right? Just like uh, you see a, a married couple that has a healthy marriage. There's just a closeness. There's just an intimacy. Likewise, there's such a, uh, such a relationship, um, uh, much more, of course, uh, between the Spirit of God and the Christian, and we see that in Peter's example here. He is caught up in the Spirit. He no longer regards his life. He's not concerned about himself. He's completely concerned about Jesus Christ and proclaiming his gospel and advancing God's kingdom from, um, from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and that's what he's concerned about. He uh, Peter uh, is... Uh, is is making an announcement that undermines the authority of Satan. Uh, again, I'm going to use this word subversive. Peter is being subversive. He's public. He's being very straightforward about it. But he's saying, now listen, we're going to undermine the authority of Satan. You're in bondage. Likewise, when you look at this world, there's a lot of bondage, whether it's uh, uh, um, sex trafficking or drugs or alcohol or our addiction to gambling. There's just all this bondage. And here's Peter saying, now listen, there's a savior here now. There's a savior who can deliver you, who can set the captives free. And so he's saying it very boldly. And he's saying it to people who had crucified the Lord. And so he's caught up. And then if you continue reading on in Acts, what do they do? They pray to God again for what? To be filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? To be courageous, courage. That's assurance of salvation. Now, there are different levels, and I want you now to go to Romans, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 through 8, and it's going to be very easy. I'm actually going to just camp on um, the first verse of, of Romans 5, 1, and then the last verse of Romans 8. So there's different levels of assurance of salvation. Um so, for example, you read the Bible and you agree with it. Well, that's good. I'm not going to, nobody should diminish that. It's good that you agree with God, and that gives you some level of assurance. I agree with the scriptures. You also not only agree with the scriptures, but you have interest in living out what God is telling you. Right? You're trying to master your faith. You're, you, you, you want to live out the life that God has called you to live out by reflecting his glory. God may ask you a question as you enter in his kingdom. It's not a test or anything, but he's going to may ask you, what did you do with the grace that I've given you? How, you know, God has fused these gifts and, you know, these talents and tasks and tasks and talents. What did you do with it, you know? So does that give you some level of assurance? Sure. 
there's fruits being generated, you know, in your life that's evidence, right? Um, is that level of some level of assurance? Absolutely. And you go into deeper knowledge of the great doctrines of the faith and you're able to teach them and you love them. Is that some level of assurance of salvation? Um, yes, of course it is. You seek God in prayer and for guidance throughout your life. Is that a level of assurance? Sure it is. But you must not stop at that. The highest level of assurance, to cut to the chase, you find in, in Romans 8. And it's where Apostle Paul writes where the Spirit of God testifies with your spirit that you belong to God and that he belongs to you. That you belong to God and he belongs to you. And this is something that the Spirit does. And that gives you full assurance. So for example, when you've seen Christian men and women die, and they die so easily, they're very comfortable, um, something they've never done before, um, and they go home to glory very easily. You'll see other, it's because they have a high level of assurance. Uh, for in Pilgrim's Progress, that's what John Bunyan's trying to communicate, where Christian, when he passes over the last river, he feels as if he's going to drown. And, and, but, but, but hopeful, um, it's not such a big deal for him to go across the last river. He, while he is still um, sinking and the water's kind of coming up, um, he still feels a firm ground. And then there are those that are going across the last river, and the river represents death, by the way. Um, it, it might feel like they're skipping across a stream, you know, that's like, you know, five inches deep or something. Um, well, well, again, how is that? It's because they have a high level assurance. The Spirit of God is testified with their spirit. Hey, you belong to me, and I belong to you, and nothing will change that. And that's the level of assurance that we should seek. But it's not guaranteed in the scriptures that we will all achieve that level of, of assurance, uh, as best as I understand it. And if you go back and you look at the Reformers and the Puritans, like John Owen is an example, you'll see many examples um, uh, of, of people coming to full assurance of their salvation. I think it was John Owen. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But it was he was like just walking one day and just enjoying uh, the natural beauty. And he was caught up in the spirit so much so that he wanted to go home to glory. You know, it was like that moment where he had full assurance of his salvation. And then he said, and I found this to be quite cute. He goes, wait, wait, Lord, I, I, I can't go because I got a wife and I've got many kids to take care of. So, um, but, but there's just these wonderful examples if you look back through history of Christians ex, uh, sharing their experiences about how they came to full assurance. And likewise, the Welsh Calvinistic Methodists emphasize this wonderful doctrine. So, well, how, how to approach it? How to approach it? I think the, the first eight chapters of Romans can be very helpful to us. So from Romans chapter 1 to 4 is basically justification by faith. Um, you'll see, for example, that this gospel is a gospel of God. So when the old preacher says the gospel is a declaration from heaven by God, well, you understand why he says that. You see the lostness of man, the hopelessness of man in the opening chapters of Romans? 
It's, it's a terrible state. So when Jesus, when they we ask Jesus, well, then who can then be saved? He goes, well, with man, it's, it's impossible, but not so with God. So you really get a sense of why I really need to be born again. And in Romans um, um, chapter 23, chapter, verse 21 through uh, 26, you see that, and I wish I could remember all their names. I, Luther was definitely one of them. Said these, you know, verses from twenty-one to twenty-six. Um, if you could say such a thing, are probably the most important verses in the entire Bible, because it shows how God is going to make everything right. It's going to make everything right through Jesus Christ. So then you get to chapter five, and chapter five opens up this way: Therefore. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. What do you call that? Assurance of salvation. Now that you've been justified by God, you now have peace with God. Where do you find joy in this life? I think it's knowing that you have peace with God and the friends and family that he gives you. The ability to be able to love one another, whether your life is short, long, or short, that's where you, that's where we find joy. On this side of the grave, knowing that we have peace with God and the people that God has given us. Now look at the end of Romans eight. Apostle Paul writes, "For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, not height nor depth, nor anything else." And all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you call that? It's called assurance. Assurance of salvation. And Pastor Tim Keller pointed out that when when Paul writes, nothing shall separate me from the love of God. And I want to point out the same thing to you today. That includes your sin. Nothing shall separate you from the love of God, including your personal sin. You see, um, uh, Satan uh, will want to uh, promote sin all the time, right? Gets us to practice it, to get better at it, to invent new ways to sin, to boast in our sin. And, And a lot of times our sin is very covert. You know, it's pride, righteousness, you know. Um, and, and then, and then when you come to die, he'll bring all these charges against you, the things that he was encouraging you to do. And you can't do anything about it because you're, you're elderly now, perhaps, and you can't go back and relive your life. You can't make those things right. What do you say? Well, what you say is nothing shall separate me from the love of God, including my personal sins. So, that's why it's so important to have assurance of salvation. So one through four is justification. Now, do you find other things that are taught within these chapters? And the answer is yes. Like you'll find examples of sanctification, example, in chapters five through eight. But it's principally the doctrine of assurance. And this is how I would want you to read it. You read chapter five and then skip six and seven and then read chapter eight. So five and then eight. And you might want to do that a few times. And then here's how I want you to approach chapter six and seven. So chapter five begins, assurance of salvation. 
And then chapter six is saying, now wait a minute, in case you get so carried away in your assurance, you think you can just keep on sinning, because I don't want you to be ignorant of the truth, Apostle Paul says. So it's the concern of antinomianism, okay? And and here you'll find this wonderful verse, verse 6, 17, where, but thanks to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard teaching to which you were committed. And that's the verse you hear from me all the time where, oh, the Spirit of God moves and illuminates our mind, captures our heart, and that changes our will. That's how we mature as Christians, okay? So chapter 6 is basically antinomianism, where it's, a, it's the teaching that it doesn't matter if we keep sinning because we've been justified by faith. And Paul, so Paul said, no, 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 come on now. We are to grow and reflect God's glory in our lives. And then chapter 7 is the other extreme that says, oh, let me put myself back under the law. But remember, is it Galatians? I died to the law so I may live on to God. And if you put yourself back under the law, you become schizophrenic, okay, is basically what's happening. You're, you're like you're, because you're never, the law can't save you. The law can't even sanctify you. The, the problem is not the law. The problem is us, right? Because the law has no power. But his purpose was to drive us to the cross. But by being born again and reflecting God's glory in our lives, by maturing in our faith and having full assurance, our appetite has changed. Our desires have changed. And you'll be able to reflect God's precepts and his laws um, and be able to flourish and help other people flourish by living unto God because you have this power now. Remember um, in Second Timothy, uh, Apostle Paul is warning a young preacher, look, there are people who have a form of godliness but deny its power, its power. So this is how to come to full assurance. And, and then in chapter 8, it reveals what full assurance is when we cry, Abba, Father, when we cry, Abba, Father, that the Spirit of God has testified with our spirit that he belongs to us and we belong to him. So I hope I want I hope I gave a good enough example in Apostle Peter. There's many to, to pick from, by the way. As you read your Bible, you'll see many examples of it. But I think a mistake that we make is we're always focused on the material or the physical. Oh, I saw the resurrected Lord, and now I have assurance, I have confidence. Um, no, no, the apostles saw other people rise saw Lazarus rise from the death, from the dead. And and just because you see somebody rise from the dead doesn't mean you want to die. <laughs> You know, it doesn't mean that you want to die. Uh-uh. No, no. So even though you might see something physically, it doesn't mean that spiritually uh, you're strong enough. And so now this kind of helps explain why in the days of Nero and you read these stories of Christians singing hymns onto their death and being set on fire, just, I mean, just, I mean, gut-wrenching ways of dying are being fed to, to, to lions and, and wild animals and things of that nature, just being tortured and they're singing and praising to God, well, how can they do that? That's because they have assurance of salvation. And that's what you and I need um, this very day, this doctrine of assurance. So I hope I've given enough framework about how to approach it um, so that our assurance would grow and that we would um, achieve full assurance of salvation um, on this side of the grave by God's by God's blessing. And so let's... Um, in our prayer, let's ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be caught up, to think more of God than anything else. Let, let us orbit around God. Let's put God's center in our lives and we orbit around Him because we live in an age 
that is promoting, oh, put yourself in the center and expect God and everyone else to orbit around you. Well, I think I'm at the, what, 28-minute mark, so a little bit longer than what I wanted, but I hope what I shared with you was enriching and, and beneficial. And again, there's nothing I'm sharing with you that comes from me. It all comes from other uh, preachers and uh, great teachers of the past, but, uh, but it is a privilege uh, to pass it along to you. Well, until next time, grace upon grace be with you all.